Shameless Media. This episode of the Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Bailey's. Irish cream liqueur, inspiring indulgence through me-time moments. Hello and welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Today, we are so thrilled to bring you this interview between lifestyle editor and writer Gian Jankovic and our very own book clubber, Sahani Gunatilika. Gian is a lifestyle editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and has just published her first novel. Just Friends explores modern friendship, what it means to be a friend, lose a friend, and everything in between. This chat is raw and relatable and honestly covers topics we need to be reminded of more often. It was an absolute joy editing this interview. I took so much from Gian's immense amount of knowledge and I'm sure you will do the same. Here's Gian and Sahani. Hi, Gian. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Hi, thank you for having me. So your debut novel, Just Friends, has been one of the most highly anticipated books of the year. And I had the pleasure of reading the advanced copy over the summer break. So thank you. You're welcome. It was fun to know that like, even though the book wasn't out over summer, that some people were reading it over summer because that's my favorite time (laughs) for you to read. Yes, same. I was reading on the beach. It was amazing. I love that. So Just Friends is divided into 10 chapters and discusses different facets of friendship. I'd love to do something a little different today where I ask you 10 questions, one for each chapter, so we can have a well-rounded conversation about all things friendship. Does that sound good? Yeah, I would love that. So the first chapter is called Me Cute. And right off the bat, I was thinking about how often I hear about how common loneliness is and how difficult it is to make friends as an adult. Since you've researched and thought about this topic so much, what is your advice to those who are struggling to meet new people and make friends? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I think that that's one of the main things that people talk about when they talk about adult friendship is how difficult it is to connect with people. For me, I think that one of the biggest things that holds us back is this expectation that if we want to make new friends, they're going to be these really big, lifelong, influential, game-changing forever friendships. And you know, from my experience, I've found that it's not always necessarily those friendships that do combat things like loneliness. You know, I think in the book, I make a real case for really low stakes friendships. Like it's okay if you meet someone and you get on with them and it turns into a friendship where you see them once a month or you text when you're watching the same TV show or something like that. I think that our obsession with, you know, forever friendships and best friends forever is really you know, overlooks a lot of the joy that can come from smaller friendships. So I think, yeah, when I'm talking about how to make friends, I think that it's all about reassessing your expectations, you know, for finding a new friend at work or at, you know, a local cafe or of a friend of a friend that you only talk to when you're at the same parties, that still counts. So I think, yeah, Mm. that's, that's what I, I think that I want people to think about is, you know, what kind of friend, you know, why do you want to make a friend? And, you know, if that is, I want to have someone to go to the movies with, or I want to have someone to text with, or, you know, I only had five people at my birthday dinner next year, by my birthday next year, I'd love to have 10. It's like those people don't need to be people Mm. that are going to replace some of your oldest and best friends. Yeah, your book has so many studies in it. And I saw one of them talked about how most of your joy comes from like more superficial friendships or not like the really powerful ones, which I thought was so like, oh, that makes me feel so good. And like, it's a kind of a refreshing take that I don't think you often hear. Totally. And I think sometimes, 
you know, if I get to the end of the day and I'm like, wow, that was a really good day. I'm feeling really happy and feeling really social. And I feel like my cup is really full. Like if I look back a lot of the times, it's like, oh, that person said hi to me on the train or I went and got a coffee from someone from work Mm. or, you know, I had a good laugh with like the girl who I sit next to. It's not always, oh, I had this amazing day because, you know, I had a five hour long phone conversation with my best friend. Like sometimes Mm. that definitely is it, but that's not always as attainable as just thinking like, where are these small moments of joy that I can find from the people around me every day? Where do you think that pressure comes from? Is it like social media, pop culture, I think for women in particular, like a lot of it comes from pop culture. And, you know, I I do think that it's good that since we've been kids and through our teenage years and stuff, we have been conditioned to see the importance of female friendship. But I also think in that same breath, like it's, it can be holding us back because if you don't have that, you don't have that group of, you know, three girlfriends or that one best friend that you've known since primary school, you can start to think, what's wrong with me? Do I even have any friends? Do the friendships that I do have matter? When really it's like, yes, they do completely. Mm. We had someone like send us a mailbag about how they were so upset that they didn't have a girl gang. Like you see in pop culture, like the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, the Spice Girls, like there are all these girl groups which make people think that they need to have friendships that reflect that as well. It's so true. And you know what? It's something that I even caught myself doing when I was writing the book in these moments of like, why do I think that I'm the person that can write this book on friendship? Like, it's not like, you know, I do have so many beautiful friends who I cherish so dearly, many of who I write about in the book, but it's not like I have this core group of five women that, you know, we get dinner once a week or we go on a holiday every summer. Like, that's not the truth. And that's also not the truth for a lot of people. Mm. So I'm going to go into the next chapter. It's called The Friendship Recipe, which is already a very cute chapter title. So I wanted to ask you, what ingredients are essential in your close friendships? My close friendships, I am a needy person, I think, to say the least. I think in a good way, and I think I can recognize that about myself. But I really love like chatting to my friends. You know, I love texting. I love sending voice memos. I love knowing what my friends had for lunch. I love knowing what they're doing on the weekend, even if they live in a different state and I'm definitely not going to see them. So I think that that kind of back and forth attention is something that I really love. You know, I have one of my best friends lives in far North Queensland and I am obsessed with whenever out of the blue, she sends me a photo of her daughter. Like it doesn't need to have any context. It doesn't need to say, how are you? What's happening? It's just kind of this shared knowledge that like the communication stream between us is always open for anything relevant or not relevant. (laughs) So I think that that's one. I also think that for me, and I think for all meaningful friendships is care. I, you know, the people that I hold closest, I know really care a lot about me and care about me in the big ways that if something bad happened, they would be there, but also in the really small ways. Like if I've had a shitty day at work or I'm not feeling well, or I'm deciding whether or not to buy this bookshelf or Facebook marketplace, like they're very invested in my life. And I think that sometimes we expect that care to go without saying, but also it actually just takes a lot of effort. And, you know, it's something that I try and reciprocate as well when a friend tells me they've got a job interview or a big meeting or a date, you know, making a mental note to be like, okay, next Tuesday morning, like 
message and see how it went. That's so sweet. When you said like, I need like friends to text me. I like was thinking about how my best friend messaged me on Instagram messages and messenger within like 15 minutes. It's like we have these three different traffic channels. (laughs) But yeah, that's what I need. (laughs) I love that. And like, I think it's not always sustainable. And in a lot of those friendships, then sometimes you look up and you're like, wow, we haven't spoken for three weeks. Like what the hell is going on? But I think that knowing that there is a reason to find that rhythm again is really important. Yeah, I love that. So you mentioned, I know we're jumping a few chapters ahead, but you mentioned the care factor, which is I think chapter five. Yeah. So you talked about how caregiving is often the term used exclusively for like parental figures and life partners. But can you share with me a time when your friends have stepped up and cared for you in ways you weren't expecting? Oh, that is a really good question. I think and this is something I write about in the book as well. When I I spent three years living in New York, after about a year and a half of living in New York, I lost my job. My role was made redundant in the company I was working for. Um, and because I was living overseas, I lost my visa at that time as well. And that was a really interesting time for me because I had, you know, these very strange and difficult few months where I was living in another country. I didn't know how long I was going to be able to stay, even though I had a lease and my partner lived over there with me. Um, and it was really amazing to see how new friends that I'd made in New York who were physically there were there for me and, you know, were talking to me through the day and making plans and doing cute things like that. But also how friends in Australia were reacting, you know, checking in. My friend bought me this, you know, researched hot yoga studios around my apartment because she knew that I loved that and, you know, organized me a membership one for those, like knew that I was worried about money. So like planned that for me, just really sweet things like that. And I think that that's the amazing thing about friendship is that when you are in this moment, when, especially when you feel really isolated, whether it's emotionally isolated or in my case, physically isolated from a lot of my friends, that people do really step up. And this is something I write about in the book as well, like how our friends are often the people that know the very specific ways to care for us, even more so than our family in some Mm. cases. It's like, this is Gyan's address. I think she would like love to be doing some kind of bougie exercise right now while she's not working. I'm going to get her, (laughs) you know, this 20 pack at hot yoga. Mm. Or I know that Gyan loves these particular cookies from this particular place, I'm going to get her delivered some. And that's information that sometimes our families don't have because we don't have that near constant communication that we might with our friends. Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned like a bunch of different friends, your friends in America and your friends back at home, which reminded me of the chapter before, which is the It Takes a Village. So I thought the title of that imply that you need a lot of different friends to connect with about your different experiences. But I'm sure there are a lot of people listening at home who don't have a village and are happy with their small circle of friends. Where do they fit into that equation? I think that, you know, this is definitely a big pressure that a lot of us put on ourselves. And I think that it's something that can be really spurred on by social media as well when you see these big group get togethers and people that have, you know, 50 people at their birthdays or yeah, they're doing these these trips with 10 people and you think, oh, I don't really have that many people. But I think that it's about recognizing the role that the people who are in your life do have and that, you know, it's it's such a cliche to say, but it's not always like quantity over quality. Definitely not ever and definitely not when it comes into friendship. And one of the things that I was trying to get into with that chapter as well was 
about family. I think that we all kind of accept that people's families look different. Some people have these really huge families with lots of siblings and cousins and togetherness. And some people, you know, are only children or they don't still have their parents around or they're disconnected to the people around them for different reasons. And in the book, I make a real case for thinking about the ways that friends can fill those roles. But similarly, I think that it's about alleviating some of that pressure and looking around and being like, these are the people that I do have. What can they do for me? What can I do for them? And like, how can we make this work? Mm. You spoke a lot about family in the chapter Family Matters as well. And I found it really fascinating when you spoke about how people feel this sense of obligation and duty towards their family when they could feel more enriched by putting time and effort into their friendships. Do you have any advice for people who have these feelings of duty and guilt when it comes to their family that they may not actually be close with? It's so interesting. And I feel like the conversation that I had um, with one of the people that I interviewed with the book who brought up that conversation around obligation was honestly one of the most influential conversations that I had about the book because the word obligation was something that, yeah, previously I had really tied to family and I'd given all these really negative connotations. And um, the person I interviewed kind of made the case of like, no, I see obligation as like a real privilege. And if you are in someone's close circle and they expect you to stand up for them, then like, that's a really beautiful thing. And you should be honored to do that. And you should make the effort too. So that's something that I've been trying to do. I think that like family in itself is such a tricky thing to navigate. You know, I'm speaking to you a few weeks after the Christmas holidays and I feel like so many of the conversations <laughs> I've had with people and people, including those who absolutely adore and cherish their families to bits, like there can be a lot of tensions and complications and, you know, it can be difficult navigating family sometimes, especially if you're going through a, your own life transition period as a lot of, you know, young women are through their twenties and thirties. I definitely don't have the solution to just solving people's family <laughs> issues. My solution, honestly, is like do the best that you can and for everything else, like look to the other people around you and your friends and think about, you know, if what you're looking for, if there's gaps, if you wish that someone cared more about your work or you wish that you had other people that, you know, wanted to make fun plans with that were more aligned with the hobbies and things you want to do, like you're probably, I mean, maybe this isn't the case for everyone, but at a certain point in your adult life, you have to accept that you can't change your family, whether it's, you know, little things that annoy you or really, really big consequential things that a lot of people deal with. All you can do, I think, is, you know, look around and see, see who else you can bring into your life or other relationships that you can nourish. Yeah, I really like the part where you talked about how friends can be your chosen family. Like, it doesn't like family looks different to everyone. So I thought that was really beautiful. And you mentioned like everyone is coming back from the break with their families, but they're coming back to work. Yes. So that brings me <laughs> to the eighth chapter. <laughs> we'll talk about work friendships, which is very aptly named working it out. So as we know, female friendships in a work setting are so important. I mean, you spoke to Mission Zara in the book as well about how integral their friendship is in their success. How have female friendships in the workplace impacted you? Oh, like so much. I can't even properly describe it, which probably sounds stupid considering I have written this whole chapter on it. I <laughs> started my career when I was 19, which 
you know, I am in my early thirties now and I look back on that and just think of what a different person I am now since then. And I think that like a lot of the changes and developments and things that I've, you know, ways that I've grown, things that I've succeeded in, uh, so much of that is down to the people that I've met at work, especially in those first few years. I was so underpaid and overworked in some jobs and things were really complicated. I went through so many different restructures and redundancy rounds and all of that stuff that people in different industries go through. And I think that that taught me from the beginning of my career that like the people around you really, really make a difference. You know, it's not just someone to get lunch with or someone to like, you know, get help with after a meeting. It can really be the difference between like you wanting to stay at a job and figuring it out or you leaving a job. And research has really backed that up as well. Like one of the you know, biggest reasons that people leave jobs aside from bad managers is workplace loneliness. And I think that, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not really something that companies and workplaces seem to talk about enough, considering that it is such a huge reason for people moving on. Mm, I feel like culture is such a crucial part of work. I totally agree. And even like retail jobs that I've had, I think because a lot of the time that's during your formative years. And also there's a sense of trauma bonding. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, I worked in retail for five years before I started working in the media. And that is the case. Like, I think that not only did it set up a lot of my work ethic from learning things from Mm. the people that I worked with and those things, but also like, yeah, you can get so close to the people you work with, especially when you're doing something (laughs) like unpacking boxes or walking these like same laps of Supre that I did for (laughs) five whole years. Um, it's really special. And I think that those friendships are really hard to replicate elsewhere unless you're living with someone or you're going to school or uni with them every day. It's it's basically impossible. Like you're not spending those same amount of hours with anyone else anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I think the incentive to go to work is often the people. At least that's how I saw it. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, you know, I read a lot of research for the book in that chapter in particular and across like all industries, the research, which I thought was really interesting. I think that when we talk about work and friendships at work, a lot of the time those conversations get very tied up in like offices. So like, oh, like, what are you talking about by the water cooler or like, you know, doing a coffee run (laughs) or sitting next to someone in a cubicle, all that stuff. But, you know, there was research from people who are working in hospitals, people who work at hotels, like across all of these industries, the real topic and theme that kept coming up was the importance of friendship, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that one's beautiful. So the one right before working it out was in the group chat. So this was like a colossal one because it talked a lot about social media. And one of the studies you referred to asked the question, how do you think your interactions with your close friends online differ to your interactions with them offline? Can I get you to answer that question? I know like other people answered it in your book. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I found myself really stumped on that question. It was funny. I had actually like written an early draft of that chapter and sent it to a friend. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit stuck on this. And she literally like Google note highlight, you should answer this question. (laughs) And I was like, okay, fine. I will interrogate myself for this book. I think that for me, I love talking to people online. Like I mentioned before, I love little texts. I love an Instagram DM. I love a voice memo. You know, I love a like be real when that was a thing. Like I loved, I love all my little silly online interactions with my friends, but I love seeing them in person. And I find that 
those conversations are the ones that I have that always feel a little bit deeper, a little bit more enriching, a little bit more meaningful. And I think that that is just because I, you know, I can see the person, I can touch the person, we can be walking, we can be doing things that isn't all the focus on like this, you know, I'm typing out the sentence. What am I going to react? Like that kind of thing. And I think that in that research, mm. that's what some of the case studies said that they liked, you know, they liked texting and talking on social media because you can take your time to reply. You can think about what you want to say. And I think that there's huge mm-hmm. benefit to that. And I think that that's why everyone kind of loves those mediums, whether you're talking about friends or someone you're dating or a parent or whatever. But the time spent with someone physically, if you're able to, of course, that is like a certain kind of privilege to be able to be close to your friends is incomparable to me. Summer holidays may be over, guys, but that does not mean we can't take time for ourselves in between our busy schedules. Today's sponsor is Bailey's Irish Cream Liqueur, and they know that in between the hustle and bustle of life, taking moments for ourselves is so important. Whether it's curling up on the couch with a book, enjoying a Bailey's over ice, or taking some time for yourself on the weekend to make a nice breakfast, take some time for yourself. I'm personally a huge fan of French toast and strongly believe it doesn't get nearly enough recognition. The addition of Bailey's Bailey's in French toast brings an exciting twist to the classic dish. It's the ultimate indulgent adult brunch. The weekends are the time to slow things down and have a moment for yourself, so what better way than with this brunch-themed dessert? If you're over 18 and interested in an indulgent treat, head online or in-store to shop the Bailey's range. And as always, remember to drink responsibly. Thank you so much to Bailey's for making this episode of the Shameless Book Club possible. Did you find that like when you were reflecting on it that your friendships are a bit more performative on Instagram and TikTok because you're displaying it, if that makes sense? I think so. And like this is something that I was also questioning myself over in the book, like thinking about when do I post when I'm with friends? You know, oftentimes it's like we're at Red Acute Bar, like we've got some oysters, we've got some cocktails, we're wearing cute outfits, the lighting's good. Like all of these Mm. things kind of have to come together to form this like post that then it's like, okay, like now's the time we're going to get a photo, we're going to share it. This is like our moment. But a lot of the times when I see my friends, we're going for a walk, we're like sitting in someone's backyard having a barbecue, we're Mm. like grabbing sushi at lunch. Like it's not glamorous and it's not something that I would post about because no one cares about that. Not to say that someone does care (laughs) that I'm like having a cute cocktail with a friend either, but it's interesting because they're usually the interactions that mean so much more to me. Like I write about in the book, how much I love running errands with a friend. Like I, you know, like take me to Ikea. I want to get meatballs. I want to walk walk around and like smell all the bad candles. Like that is my perfect moment, but that's not something that I want to share with someone. But I think like, you know, the same goes for romantic relationships. Sometimes it is those moments that you don't want to share or you would never share, or they would seem so absolutely mundane and boring to anyone else that are the most magical in friendships. Mm -hmm. I found it really interesting because I talked to my friend about this chapter, how we don't have any like photos together. (laughs) And I've known her for like over 10 years. And we were trying to figure out like, why has that never happened? Like, why don't we think to do that? And I think it's what you said. It's like a lot of things that seemingly don't matter, but obviously matter a lot to us. Totally. I'm the same. And like, I 
have definitely fallen out of a habit of taking photos with friends. And I think it's because I only take photos when I'm like, oh, I'll probably post this. But I think that, you know, there's a benefit in just like taking a photo of your friend when like you're just at home in your trackies and you're not going to post it and it's just going to be for you to look back in 10 years. And that's like a habit that I really want to get into more in the next year and something that I've definitely spoken to my friends about too. Mm, Yeah, exactly. So we're getting to the more end of the book and I have to say a lot of my favourite chapters were towards the end. So keep reading. (laughs) Chapter eight is breakups and breakdowns. So this was all about like, or at least this made me think about how a lot of people in their 20s drift or outgrow their high school friends. I've experienced this myself and I've kind of felt this strange sense of grief because they were such an integral part of my formative years. What advice would you give to people who are considering cutting ties with their high school friends because they think they've outgrown them? Gosh, that's a tricky one. And it's funny because I remember, I'm not from Sydney, I'm from um, regional New South Wales. And I remember moving to Sydney at 19 and being so sure that I would meet people in my new, like fantastic Sydney life that would kind of totally replace a lot of the friends I had growing up. And not that it was true in some ways because there was no kind of replacing and there was no cutting out, but I'm close to like a handful of my high school group, but the others, you know, I love them all to bits. We're in a group chat that's active like a few times a month. I see them a couple of times a year and I, you know, love and cherish them all. But I am closer to a lot of the friends that I've made in adulthood. And I think that that's for a lot of reasons because we live in the same city. It's because we have similar jobs. We're more aligned. I can see them more. We have, you know, maybe similar interests than I do from people who I knew growing up. But I think that sometimes we can all, and I say this myself so much included, get very wrapped up in the idea of like cutting ties and the idea that Mm. if a relationship or a friendship isn't as close as it once was, that like it has no place in our lives now. And I can say like I am 15 years out of school now and there's no way that I would ever stop calling my friends from school my friends, even if I didn't talk to them Mm. for another five years. The relationship has changed so much, but that's because everything else in our lives has changed so much. You know, people have had kids and bought houses and moved and got married and all of these things. Like, I think that it would be crazy to think that our friendships would still the same, but that's not to say that they don't matter. It's kind of just accepting that like there are many different versions of ourselves and like it's really beautiful to still be in touch with people who knew us when we were kids and when we were teenagers. And even if we don't feel completely aligned to that person, like that version of ourselves anymore, it's still a big part of who we are. And I think that that's sometimes why I love spending time with people who knew me when I was that age, because they do know these bits of you that no one else does because no one else is seeing them anymore. Mm -hmm. But what I found to be really interesting as well is that like, you know, I definitely fell into that like old me kind of like living in my hometown and doing that thing. And then like this new version of myself that I felt come out once I moved to Sydney and, you know, started working and met all these new people. But in reality, like even the friends who I met during that time, you know, a little over 10 years ago now, like they've seen new versions of me through that time. And I think Mm. that once you accept that, like, we all still keep evolving, even if we're not doing those big moves and those big job changes and those big, you know, relationship milestones and those things, like if they're not changing, like we ourselves are still changing. And I definitely have friends Mm. who, yeah, I met 10 years ago. And I think back to who I was when we met and I'm like, oh, I'm not really that person anymore. Or that might, you know, even be the case for five years ago. And I'm sure that in the next five years, I'll feel a little bit more disconnected to the person 
that I am. But I think you just need to accept that like some of those friendships are going to stick around and they're going to see every iteration of you and you're going to see every iteration of them. Whereas other people, you know, there's kind of a beauty in being like at that point in my life, we were really close and that like meant a lot to me. But now we've both moved on and, you know, that's not the case anymore. Chapter nine was Loved and Lost, which I found to be like a very emotional read. I was really moved by the last paragraph of this chapter where you said, I hope there will be friends who I immediately thought of when I pass. I hope that our closeness will have been common knowledge and just as respected as the relationships I have with my partner, family or children. I hope somebody asks my friends if they are okay. I hope they are cooked and cared for. So this part really touched me because when I was in high school, I lost a friend. And I remember feeling so out of place amongst all of his family at the funeral, as if there wasn't place for me to grieve. Why do you think that sometimes friends in that position feel somewhat like an imposter? Gosh, I mean, firstly, I'm sorry to hear about that. It's really difficult for anyone to lose a friend, especially so young. But I think, and this is, you know, that's actually the first chapter of the book that I wrote because in many ways it felt like one of the most important chapters because I think that it's one of the least talked about aspects of friendship and that is Mm -hmm. what happens to you and what happens to your, you know, the love that you have for someone when one of your friends dies. In the book I write about the hierarchy of grief, which, you know, when you read it, it's not surprising to anyone. It's someone dies who gets to be the most upset about it. It's people's parents or their children or their partner. After that, it's, you know, their extended family. It's how we expect things to go. But, you know, as is the case, like as anyone who has experienced grief would say, is that it's not necessarily how things go and no one can predict, you know, who grieves the most and it shouldn't be a competition. And it, becomes really hard, I think, for people to get the help they need or even to get people to recognize that they might need some help through something if Mm -hmm. they're not being thought of when someone passes. You know, I speak to a few people in the book who have lost close friends and they bring up the same things of you, like in, you know, funerals, which is such a big part of you know, our rituals around death, it's, you know, who gets to say the eulogy, who gets to be a pallbearer, like Mm -hmm. even in those functions, the hierarchy of grief is really coming into life. And if you're someone who, you know, wasn't a close friend or perhaps used to be a really close friend and then wasn't that close to someone when they passed away, you can really find yourself in like a very dark and meddling middle area where you don't really know what to do. And it's such a horrible place to be. I spoke to this amazing researcher for that chapter who had done a lot of research and she found that for many people, the death of a close friend can be just as impactful as the death of a close family member. But there's no functions within our society to care for those people. You know, a lot of palliative care units don't extend the same care that they do to spouses and close family members to close friends. You know, our, in Australia, our bereavement leave policy doesn't extend to Mm. friendships. It's only if your partner dies, immediate family or someone in your household. And I just, I think that it's so disappointing because it wasn't hard for me to find the case studies for that story. You know, there are so many people that have a story of losing a friend and so many of them echo that same message as you of, I didn't know my place. I didn't know what to do, but like, I was really, really hurting because I'd lost this person. It's really, Mm. I don't know the fix to it, but I think that like all we can do until there is some kind of cultural shift is like have the conversations, honestly. Yeah. No, I was so shocked when I read The Bereavement Period. 
And I didn't really like think about how that would affect people because I just haven't lost that many people. I'm obviously very young. So I was like, that would be so hard for so many people to go through. Even if you're a family member, I think it was only two days. Like, I know. It's just so shocked. It's really shocking. And I think that like, you know, from a lot of people, workplaces are quite flexible around that. And there are things like personal leave and yeah. sick leave and you know other types of leave that you can take. But at the end of the day, it's still what the policy says. And I think that it's, you know, it's a really sad way to highlight the fact that we value some relationships more than others, like just regardless of how much underlying love and mm. the history that you can have with someone. Mm. And the final chapter is called Letting Go of the One. So this made me reflect on how most of us have witnessed a close friend get into a relationship and abruptly stop hanging out with their friends as a result. Can you speak to the consequences of putting more weight on romantic relationships over friendships? Yes, I think this is like my favorite chapter of the book. So I was very happy when you said that you liked (laughs) the end of the book because so much of our society is built around finding romantic love. Like so many of our big life milestones are hooked on that. It's so much of what we talk about in pop culture. It's so much of what people, you know, strive towards. And I think that that is very important. I wanted to make very clear in the book that like, (laughs) I am like pro love. I love my partner. I'm in a very happy relationship, but I do think that our, you know, the way that we value romantic love above everything else is really doing us a disservice. I interviewed for the book single people, which I think are often what people assume are going to be the group that's like, yeah, I love my friends, you know, like I don't need a boyfriend. I've got my best friends. And it's like, yeah, that's definitely how some people feel. And I think that there is a really unique, you know, magic to the friendships between single women for sure. I've like experienced that myself. But I also think that there's a conversation to be had about people who are in really happy long-term relationships who are like, oh no, my friends still matter so much to me. And it was funny, like after writing the book, I've been so surprised at how many people want to talk to me about that. Because I think Mm -hmm. one of my, you know, fears of the book was that I was going to come across as this person who was like very like anti-relationships, anti-romantic love, which is not the case. But it was almost as if as soon as people were given permission to be like, yeah, I love my husband, but also like, you know, one of many very important relationships in my life. And like, I love my friends and they are everything to me. As soon as you say to people like, that's Mm -hmm. okay to say, and that's okay to admit. And it's, you know, okay to like, think about those kind of priorities. A lot of people are very happy to do it, which was such a like refreshing realization for me to have. Yeah. Some things are just for the girls. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So to finish the interview, I wanted to do a quick fire round of questions. I do this every time. Yes, I'm ready. So the first one is, what are you currently reading? I actually last night finished reading Outline by Rachel Kask. It is part of a trilogy. I had heard great things about it. A friend recommended it to me. It's such a beautiful book. The writing is like incredible. The kind of writing that you're like, wow, I will never be able to write a fiction book. It's just stunning. It's like a book made up of 10 conversations and... Now that I've finished that, I don't really know what to go on to next. I feel like I have this huge to-be-read pile, but also I'm like, do I just stick to what I know and read the second book in the Outline Trilogy? Time will tell. Oh, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy, um, but I don't have the second book in the trilogy, so I'm like, maybe I should read some of the books that I continue to buy, (laughs) which is... 
<laughs> so many. I have a huge pile. I thought I was going to get through so many more books than I did in the summer holidays. You've been busy. You've been promoting <laughs> this one. <laughs> I've seen her books around though. They have very aesthetically pleasing covers. They're really beautiful, which like I'm such a sucker for a good cover. I know you're not meant to say that, but it makes a difference to me. No, it does. Even our book club pick right now is Tom Lake, which is straight out of an art gallery. It's stunning. So our next one, roughly how many books do you read every year? Not as many as I should. I am definitely not a like book a week person. I think I read probably... I think on like a good year, probably like 20 books a year. Last year was like That's solid. I mean, maybe I'm like, now that I say that, maybe I'm like, maybe it's less. Um, <laughs> last year was a weird year for me because I was writing the book. So I was reading so, so much, but I wasn't reading the books from cover to cover. I was like, okay, mm. I'm going to get this book that's on work and I'm going to read the chapter that's about like, connection at work. So I did so much reading, but I'm like, I can't suck it up and like add a book to my Goodreads that I haven't actually (laughs) read from start to finish. But (laughs) I have started off the year strong as I always do in summer, but I'm hoping to continue it. I need to fall into some routines. Whenever I listen to this podcast and people are like, I read 500 books last year, I feel (laughs) very sad about myself. No, don't. I also feel like a lot of people that have really high book totals, they don't read very long books or they like stop, like they read books that are like pacey. And it's like, I think if you want to read like widely, you got to read like long books, you got to read books that you're not used to. And that's not going to like, you know, dial up your book count that okay. much. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's made I- me feel a lot better. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of like validation <laughs> about this because I feel like a lot of people set goals for the new year. And I think it's out of fashion to be like, or out of not trending as much to be like setting book numbers, more yes. like goals about other things. Yeah. Look, I'm never going to be the 52 books a year Goodreads challenge winner. <laughs> and I, I accepted that. <laughs> And my third one is what book would you recommend to a friend going through a hard time? I've been thinking about this because I always love when you ask this question. I think that it would depend on the friend. I have like two different kinds of recommendation. One recommendation would just be like, ask the friend what, like if they've read all of your favorite books. Like I did this with a friend a few years ago. I was like, have you read Sally Rooney, Normal People? And she was like, no. And I was like, great, I'm buying you a copy and I'm literally <laughs> like dropping it to your house. Um, so I think that that's like, you want distraction. You mm-hmm. just want like, yeah, you want that something pacey. Like you want to like, you know, sit down with yellow face and read it in a whole afternoon. The other recommendation I have though, which I think could be something that like I'm more fall into the trap on is like reading a book about someone else who's like totally going through it. Like I just finished Death Valley by Melissa Broder and it is... I don't, without spoiling it, it's about a woman who is really going through it in her personal life and essentially like walks into the desert. It is very (laughs) funny, also very bizarre. And I just, I think that sometimes it's nice to read something when you're going through a hard time and be like, yeah, people don't handle these things well, but also this is like, (laughs) this is kind of funny and it is an escape. And like, if I can't walk into the desert, then like I can imagine what it would be like for better or worse. That's so funny. I haven't heard of that book before. You'll have to look it up. It's by the same author of um, Milk Fed, which I haven't read, but I've heard is amazing. I love that book. Again, very aesthetically pleasing. Yes. Yeah, that book is really good. You should read it. And also kind of funny. So that makes sense. Yeah, she's a very funny writer. And my last question is what book deserves more hype than it gets? 
So one of the best books that I have read in the last few years is called Boyfriends by Michael Peterson. He is a Scottish poet and is honestly like one of the most beautiful writers I have ever read. I don't know if the book is underhyped. It's been nominated for lots of awards. He (laughs) has been like touring the world. Um, So it's not overhyped, but it's overhyped in the fact that like I will not rest until like literally every single person I know has read this book. (laughs) It's a memoir, but it is, I quoted a lot in my own book, actually. It is written to a friend of his who sadly passed away. It's a real meditation on friendship and grief and life. And it is just so beautifully written that like I never cry in books. I'm like not a big cry in you know movies tv shows books but I was yeah so teary reading through all this book even in the happy moments just because it's so stunningly written it has a beautiful cover and if you like poetry his poetry is really beautiful as well there's a lot of it around so is it a book of poetry or is it fiction? It's a memoir. So it's, okay. yeah, so a lot of, so it's basically written to his friend, um, his friend who passed away, whose name is Scott Hutchison. He was the lead singer of this band called Frightened Rabbit, which I know a lot of people really love. Uh, so the book kind of flits between memories of their friendship and the days after Scott first passed away, but then also just other friendships that influence Michael's life. It's just, it's like a beautiful amalgamation of like, memory and sadness and hope. I love that. Thank you so much for the interview as well. And the book. I really, really enjoyed this book. I, I'm trying to read more nonfiction this year and this has been a very good start. Oh, that's nice to hear. I also don't read much nonfiction, which I probably shouldn't say as someone who's just written a nonfiction book, <laughs> but <laughs> that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Shameless Book Club. You can grab yourself a copy of Gian's debut novel, Just Friends, by the link in our show notes. You can also follow us on socials by searching at The Shameless Book Club on Instagram and on TikTok. We will see you on Tuesday, February 6th for our book review episode. Until then, stay safe. Bye. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.